today, so we're going to have a few different things. 12 years now? 2008, probably. Eight, seven, eight, yeah, somewhere in there. So, uh, Aaron, you are now Murraysville? Murraysville, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. And you've been uh, preaching for um, how many years now? Well, 10, 10 years, 11 10 years. years 10, 11 time. years. So. Um, so keep your ears open. Uh, he is a well-qualified guy and a guy that's uh, heart is in the right place. So, oh yes, and children are allowed to leave. <laughs> well, not leave, just minish children. <laughs> I got this. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to start in chapter 10. It's one long section that we're going to tackle in summary fashion. And trust that it will give you some real encouragement. Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, we long for your name to be hallowed this morning. Lord, we long for your kingdom to come in some small portion to touch our hearts and minds. We long for your will to be done as, as if we were in your very presence in heaven itself. Father, I would hesitate to ask those things because they are very grand requests, but you taught us to pray that way. And so though all of us would stand before you uh, absolutely unworthy, absolutely needy, with no right at all to ask these things, you have invited us to come boldly into your presence because you sit on a throne of grace. And so, Lord, we ask that we would leave here today a little bit more like Jesus, loving him a little bit more than we did when we came. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Marty was asking me briefly how our transition has gone from New York to Pennsylvania. I was uh, pastoring a church in Binghamton, New York for the last five years, and we have this summer transitioned to Pennsylvania, where I'm simply just uh, waiting on the Lord. We're um, helping my parents with their pet business and doing some remodeling. And Marty said, how's it going? I said, well, it's been a bit of a rough go. Uh, it was a little bit of a rough go in New York, and the transition, uh, well, I'll just say, it started with um, at the signing of our house in New York, the closing signing of it, it got delayed. I had to wait there an extra hour for the buyer to, I don't know, get certain papers to their bank. And Jenny had already left in the van with the kids. Um, one stayed with me, Cameron. 
And so she was about two hours ahead of me. It's a five and a half hour drive from Binghamton, New York to Murraysville, Pennsylvania. And I, we get out of the signing, everything, finally, yes, the house is sold, keys are handed over. We go to the truck to get in, and I didn't have the keys. Guess where the keys were? Keys were with Jenny, two hours ahead of me. And it was already, because of the delay, it was already like three in the afternoon. And like, man, what are we going to do? So Randy U-Haul, they're like, well, if it's, a, if it's an etched key, that's going to be like $150 extra dollars. I'm like, you're kidding me. Thankfully, it was a cut key, and I learned the difference. And you can Google that afterwards, what's the difference between a cut key and an etched key. Anyway, it was only 12 bucks, and only delayed us an hour, hour and a half. But all summer it's been like that. This is the house we're in the process of purchasing, which we hope to close September 14th. That's our fifth attempt to buy a house this summer, our fifth attempt. Uh, and even this house that we're pro in the process of buying, the septic failed the test, the appraisal didn't line up. Do you ever have, like, just thing after thing go wrong? You're like, what is going on? Like, hello? And even though they're small things and in the scope of eternity, they're nothing things and maybe even dumb things, as you string a series of those glitches together, Murphy's got my number this summer, and I tell you, if I ever find Murphy, he's dead. I'll be in jail. He'll be like, why are you in jail? I killed Murphy. So... We come to this text in Hebrews chapter 10, in verse 32, and he says, remember those who received the light, it's the gospel, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. So this is what he's going to deal with for the next chapter and a half, or almost two chapters, encouraging these Christians to endure suffering. Not glitch suffering like I just mentioned, although I think the principles here could help us through even those little things. The suffering that they're enduring, which we're going to read about, is pressuring them so much that some of them are tempted to just throw in the towel on Christianity, on Christ himself. And so our encouragement today is primarily to encourage us through hard times and suffering, whatever it may be. You may identify directly with some of the folks we're going to read about, or maybe you've just had, like I have, one of these just, man, this is just frustrating that everything just seems to go wrong all the time. Why does the ketchup always have to be in the back of the refrigerator? And when I reach for it, why does everything just have to fall out? I don't care if it's something dumb and little like that or if it's catastrophic and your heart is just devastated with despair. This text, I hope and trust you. So he brings this up. Remember when you received the gospel. Remember when you endured, you persevered in a great conflict of suffering. And then he brings it up. And I'm sure some of them reading this are like, thank you. Thank you for bringing up that very painful memory. Well, he goes on anyway. Verse 33, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insults and persecution. So maybe you can identify with that. Maybe you were doing the right thing. You were just trying to be a person full of integrity at work, and somebody got you in the back. Maybe you were taking a stand, as Casey prayed for the teachers and the kids to take a stand for the gospel and for the Lord at some level. You're going to get insulted for that, kids. 
teachers. These people were getting insulted for that. And it went beyond. They were persecuted. Verse 34. You suffered along those who in prison. Some were in prison. You joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Anyone ever have their house taken away for doing right? I mean, some people get their house taken away because they foreclosed on it for whatever reason. They couldn't pay their bill. These people were having their homes and property taken away for doing good, for trusting Christ, for living the Christian life, for sharing the gospel, for loving Jesus. He says, because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possession. They weren't too attached to their house. They were attached to something better. He says again, so don't, uh, verse 35, so don't throw away your confidence, your courage. Don't give up. It's just another way of saying, hang in there, endure, persevere. I know things are rough. Things are going hard for you. But hang in there. You'll be richly rewarded. You might want to note that reward. That's going to follow through over and over again. It's going to come up. Hang in there. There's a reward at the end of this. There's a light at the tunnel, and it's going to be amazing. So again, another encouragement. You need to persevere. So that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. This idea of reward and promise are going to be connected all the way through this chapter and a half. And we'll note that as we go. And so how do we endure? How do we persevere? He's going to give two main thoughts. The one is faith. Faith in God's promise. Faith in God's future grace is what I call it. And that's a quote from John Piper. If you're going to make it through something hard right now, you have to have a confidence, a faith, a trust. You have to bank on God being able to do something later, tomorrow, in the future, ultimately in eternity. You, you just got to bank on God. And I don't know if I have much else to offer you this morning than this, this idea of faith, of knowing, believing, trusting, having a confidence and assurance that God has got this, and you can bank on that. That, that is the way to endure suffering. That, according to Romans, is the way to overcome sin. If you're struggling with sin, what, what do you need to do? You need to bank on God's word, that it's true. That's what Adam and Eve didn't do. They, they decided to believe what Satan said instead of what God said. It was an issue of faith. Who do you believe? You struggle with lust? B- believe what God says about it. If you believe that it's the way of death, and you believe, like Psalm 16, that there's pleasures forevermore in, in, in his presence... Who do you believe? So that, that's the way to overcome sin. Our text, how do you endure, persevere through suffering, hardships, trials? Same idea. And he's going to list the very same verse that Paul lists in Romans. Let me just skip to, to it. Verse 38. But my righteous ones, or the just, will live by faith. So that's, if you're taking notes, how do I hang in there through suffering? It's faith in the promises of God or faith in the future grace of God. Banking on God. Six children, we've gone through this with just about all of them, except maybe Kyle, he was just kind of reckless. 
swimming. All of them would come to the diving board and hesitate, and I would be in the water. Come on, Coke, you can do it. I'll catch you. What will trigger them to jump? Except for Kyle. He just jumped in. He didn't care. What triggers them to jump? The moment they believe that I will catch them and keep their head from going under the water. But that's future to them, right? They're on the diving board. It's future just a few moments, but it's still future. They have to believe in that future promise, reward, grace that dad's going to catch them. That's what he's going to argue for the next chapter in a bit. Faith. And he's going to bring, I didn't count them up, but there's got to be at least a half a dozen Old Testament stories that he's going to bring to your mind about people that banked on God They were on the diving board. God said, jump. I'm going to catch you. They believed him, and they jumped. And God caught them. That's reason number one. We persevere. We believe. We bank the future grace of God, the promises of God. Back to verse 37. In just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. That's a quote illustrating the future grace of God, the promise, the coming of Christ. You've got to bank on that. How do you bank on that? It's faith. It's faith. And interesting, if you jump down to 39, and you're like, you're skipping stuff. I know. We're just flying over at 30,000 feet so you can get the main ideas. Look at the last phrase of verse 39. Well, let me just read the verse. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed. That's the opposite of faith. But to those who have faith and are saved. Do you ever wonder? At first, it seems so easy to trust Jesus to save us from hell. But then tomorrow when you wake up and you're not sure uh, if you're going to have enough finances to pay for your kids' clothes or your mortgage, then you have trouble. Why is it? easy to trust Jesus to save you from hell, but it's not easy to trust Jesus to take care of your needs. So we left, uh, I think, all of our dressers in Binghamton. They were all old and junky, and we said, like, I'm not going to lift in those things. Just toss them. So we tossed them. We came to Murraysville with no dressers. I don't think we even prayed, like, Lord, please provide dressers. I don't even think we prayed for the Lord to provide dressers. We got dressers all over the place. I don't know how many dressers we have. And I got another lady who's offering us a bunch of dressers. I'm like, what? Because what does the scripture tell us? He knows what you need before you even ask. This is the kind of God we have that we can bank on, that we can trust in. We trust him for our eternity, but sometimes we have a hard time trusting him for what's going on here and now. So chapter 11, he moves again. I think if I counted right, and you can count if you want, but it's about 26 times that the word faith is mentioned from verse 38 of chapter 10 to chapter 12 and verse 2. And it keeps coming back to faith and the promise reward of God. That God has made promises that are amazing. You need to bank on that. If you, you will get to be like these people that he keeps bringing up. You'll make it. You'll endure. You'll persevere. And it is not, it's not like 
tomorrow you're going to wake up and you'll be like, all right, I'm going to have faith in the promises of God and it's like some uh, power pill that you take and you're done. No, it's every day. It's every moment. It's every afternoon. Something's going to sweep in to tempt you not to trust, to not bank on God. Like Peter walking on water, he, he made a decision to trust. He banked on Christ that Christ could keep him from sinking, and he stepped out of the boat. No matter how critical we want to be of Peter at that moment, he did step out of the boat. None of the other disciples did. But as he took a few steps, somehow he got distracted, and he stopped banking on Christ. That's, that's the Christian life. We, we're, we need to bank on Christ, trust on Christ, moment by moment. I think that's the, as Paul's soldiers don't, they keep the shield up all the time. By day, moment by moment, we have decisions to make of who we're going to believe, what we're going to believe, the voices that we hear inside our head, all around us. So he begins marching example after example. Why does he spend, I mean, chapter 11 just goes on and on and on making the same point. Example after example. Why does he keep, what, couldn't he just, just, you know, given the creation example, and Abel been done with it? I think because the writer of Hebrews knows people, and he knows that we need assurance after assurance after assurance. We need a mind that is continually being saturated with the evidence of God's faithfulness, that God is a promise-keeping God. Because for some reason, I'm just prone that the next time a trial, the next time Murphy has my number, I, I'm tempted to be like, wah! So he takes great pains to go through the Old Testament. And if you say, well, I'm having trouble trusting God. Well, start with saturating your mind with the faithful promise-keeping stories of God. You know, like 80% of the Old Testament is stories illustrating God's greatness and faithfulness. Verse 6, chapter 11. And without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe, must believe, must trust, must have confidence, must bank on that he exists and catch the next phrase that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. There it is. He rewards. Let's drop down to verse 8, Abraham's example. If you know the story, he's kind of just called to leave. Where he was is get up and move. Verse 9, by faith he made his home in the the promised land, the promised land, catch the, the promised, like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents. So at first it didn't seem to be that great, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. God is a promise-keeping God. Sarah, in verse 11, was enabled to bear child because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. She banked on God. God made a promise. She banked on it. It happened. 
Verse 13. All the people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. Whoa, 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 whoa. Didn't you just bring up Sarah? She ba- God promised her a son. She banked on it. She counted on it. And it happened. And then the very next verse, wait a second. All these people that we just mentioned, Abraham and Sarah, were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. Because there were greater promises involved than just Isaac, weren't there? If you go back and read through that story, it wasn't just Isaac. It was blessing for all the nations of the earth. It was promise of Messiah. And they didn't receive it. So should that diminish our ability to count on God? Well, they didn't receive their promise yet. Yet. Verse 16. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Something better. There was something better for Abraham and Sarah than just Isaac. There was something better for Abraham and Sarah than just, you know, a couple hundred acres or whatever it is in the Middle East. Something better. And they counted on that. You know, I think probably the most famous story about Abraham is how God says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, to the mountain that I'll tell you and offer him there as a sacrifice. And what does Abraham respond to that? He counted on God. Verse 17, he had embraced the promise. And uh, the writer here argues that he must have embraced that God was going to raise Isaac from the dead. God said Isaac was the promise and that through Isaac all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Abraham banked on it. And because he banked on it, he was able to move forward in obedience. Jump down. Let's switch to Moses. Verse 24, 25. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace, that's insults, for the sake of Christ as a greater value than the treasures of Egypt because, same thing, he counted on God, he banked on Christ, that he was a promise-keeping God, that there was future grace because he was looking ahead to his reward. And so by faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger, he persevered, he endured. You're having a hard time in suffering? We've got to move this way. We've got to start counting on Jesus in a very personal, practical way, that today there's going to be some wind that's blowing, the clouds are going to come and hide the sun, but the sun's still shining. And I have to count on that. All the people that just went through the hurricane in Hawaii, now the sun is shining. And I know there's terrible flooding, and we we, uh, trust that you'll pray for some of those people. But we know that God is a God of future grace. Because of that, we endure. That's how Moses made it through. He gets down to some just summary. He says in verse 32, what more shall I say? I don't have time. And I don't have time either to to keep going. 
through all these people. So he just machine gun fires, you know, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel. And he says there at the end of verse 33, excuse me, verse 33, that they gained what was promised. Catch that? So there's, there's this tension between, yes, here and now we gain what's promised, but yet we haven't gained what's promised. You saw that earlier with Abraham. He, he gained what's promised in Isaac, but yet he didn't gain what's promised. He died without receiving the promise. Here we see people gaining what was promised, but drop down to verse 35, right in the middle. There were others. <laughs> there were others. So there's people who gained what was promised. They shut the mouth of lions. They quenched the fury of flames. They escaped the edge of sword. Yeah, I want to be in that group. Don't you? But there were others. And what were this other? What's the other group? Tortured, flogged, imprisoned, sawn in two. That doesn't sound very fun. I, uh, been doing plumbing for my parents uh, this week, and that, of course, as soon as I say that, you know, that's the, oh, man, trials. Well, I was trying to rip some pipe out, and I was using the sawzall, and I, the pipe was shaking, so I grabbed it with this hand and tried to do one hand with a sawzall. Yeah, dumb, huh? It bounced off the pipe, and thankfully, it's just a little flesh wound, you know, nothing big. But uh, it didn't feel good. Saw it in two. Doesn't sound like a happy day. And then it says of all these people, it says they were commended for their faith. They still banked on God, yet none of them received what had been promised. So there's a tension. We get to receive you know, some of what's promised, but some of what's promised is still yet to come. And no matter what group we fall into, no matter how much we seem to experience of God's promise now, or how little we... It's the same for all of us. We count on God. We bank on We know that He has future grace. Ephesians, we read a scripture from Ephesians 5 in our worship. You back up into to chapter 2. He says that He's going to show us the riches of His grace for all of eternity. I guess it just comes down to whether you believe that or not. And if you're like me that struggles sometimes with you know, anxiety and depression and so on. It's like, where are you? Why is it going bad? What do I need to do? I need to start banking on Christ more. And the more I bank on Christ, the more peace I have. He concludes this thought of if you're, if you, if you're needing to endure through some hard times, you need to count on Christ, bank on Him, trust Him, have faith in His future grace and His promises. He concludes by bringing up the par excellent example. He's gone through amazing people. Abraham, Moses, David, Daniel, he, you know, got reference there, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. He brings up the greatest example ever. And he says in chapter 12, Right at the end of verse 1, let us run with perseverance. You see, it's the same thing. Hang in there, keep going, endure. Let us run with perseverance. And then he brings up Christ, fixing our eyes on Jesus, counting on him. This may be a subtle reference to that story in the Old Testament where the snakes were biting him. 
And what did they, that Moses built that little bronze serpent and they were told to look and live? Some of them probably had to, you know, it's a big camp, a million people, so I'm sure it wasn't visible. So some of them had to drag their sorry, sick carcasses over and look at this snake. And if you were out a couple hundred yards and couldn't see it and somebody came to you and said, you need to crawl over there and I'll try to help you, but you've got to look at that snake and you'll be healed. You'd be like, what? What? That's the corniest thing I've ever heard. But that's what God said. And those that counted on it somehow got there, looked and lived. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, counting on Jesus, banking on him. And you know what? He's not disconnected from us. It says that he's the pioneer here in this translation and perfecter of faith. He had faith. He banked on the promises of God. How did Jesus bank on him? For the joy set before him, that the reward, the promise set before him, he endured the cross. He had to endure. <coughs> Probably a lot harder than anything we'll ever do. His friends rejecting him, his nation rejecting him, his enemies crucifying him. How did he make it through? According to this text, for the joy set before him, he believed in the future promise, reward of God. He endured the cross. And so ultimately, if we're going to make it through hard times, if we're going to be a persevering, enduring type of people, our eyes need to just laser on Christ, laser on the gospel, on what he has accomplished, that he can be count on, that he's faithful, that he's in this with us, Verse 3 says, just consider him. <laughs> consider. Consider Jesus. When you're, when you're in trouble, consider him. So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Because that's what happens. When you're in tough times, it's easy to grow weary and to lose heart. It's easy to give up. It's easy to fall into despair. You're at school, kids this year and you're getting made fun of because you decided not to cheat on your math test, it's easy to just, why bother? Teachers, it's easy. Just, well, I'm just going to print some lesson plans off the Internet. Just, who needs this? These kids won't listen anyway. It's easy to give up doing right. It's easy to... And he says, so don't hang in there. Focus on Christ. Nothing that you experience is going to be half as hard as what he's experienced. He made it through by faith and the promise of future grace, the joy before him. Follow in his footsteps by faith so that you do not grow weary and lose heart. So that's, that's encouragement number one. If you're going to make it through a frustrating time in your life, a difficult time in your life, whether it's like these people from persecution. I guess I don't have anything new to say to you. You just need to count on Christ more, bank on him and, and his future grace, like all these other people that have gone before you. Number two, idea number two to encourage you, and it really can't. The reason I was originally just going to start with number two and spend all my time on number two but I realized you cannot access number two, you cannot apply number two to your life 
unless you first get number one. Number two is accessed by faith. And what is that? Verse 6 of chapter 12, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. So God loves you. We sang, Jesus loves you. Come on, this is a Sunday school message. I guess so. I mean, if you ask the little kid, how do you make it through a tough time? They're just like, Jesus. Like, you're right. (laughs) Jesus loves me. This I know. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. But you have to believe that. Don't you? So that goes back to number one. That's why I say you need number one. You have to be a person. The just shall live by faith. The Christian shall live by faith. It's like a dimmer switch. You just got to keep cranking it, and it's going to get brighter. And sometimes you bump it the wrong way, but you got to just keep cranking it. And when it's cloudy and dark, and then there's storms around, and things are going wrong, <coughs> I know it's hard to believe that he loves you. He's like, he's for you. Well, it doesn't feel like it. Why does everything keep going wrong then? And there might be a variety of reasons. Maybe you do have sin in your life that you need to deal with or something. But this text, it's going wrong for people who are doing the right thing. They're trying to live out their Christian life. They're taking a stand for Jesus, and they're having a hard time, a very hard time, as we saw in chapter 10. And this writer calls it discipline. Usually we think of terms of discipline as like you're being punished or corrected for something you're doing wrong, but not in this case. This is like training, like a coach training their their, uh, athlete to be stronger and better and faster. Let me jump back to verse 3. Consider him who endured such oppositions from sinners. Verse 4, in your struggle against sin. We cannot separate those verses. I know you probably have a heading in your Bible. You know, God disciplines his children, and sometimes we all of a sudden think, oh, well, I'm, I'm being tempted to sin, and i gotta, I got to resist it, and um, at least I haven't um, been bleeding because of my sin. That's not what verse 4 means. Verse 4, in its context, you're struggling against the sin of persecution, You're struggling against sinners just as Jesus was struggling against sinners. And I suppose that our author just, you know, shorthand it in your struggle against sin. The sin of persecution or sinners like we just saw in verse 3. So you're struggling with the hardship that's going on around you. And he says again in verse uh, 5, not to lose heart. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as sons. When you're going through hard times, every hard thing that happens to you is actually a statement of God's love. You say, I don't believe that. Well, that's the issue then, isn't it? You know the story of Lazarus, Mary and Martha, John chapter 11. A note is sent to Jesus saying Lazarus is sick, very sick. He might die, probably going to die. Get here ASAP, Jesus. You know what Jesus does? Let's go on a four-day vacation. 
I don't know if it's vacation. Anyway, he delayed. But the note said, didn't say Lazarus, it actually said the one you love. And then the text goes on to say that Jesus did love them. And yet, where was he? <coughs> Took too long of a nap? No. He intentionally delays. And he gets there and he tells them, the reason I've intentionally delayed is so that you would see greater things. So you'd see the glory of God. Do you believe this? An issue of faith. Are you, can you count on me still? Things are pretty dark. He stinks. He's in the grave. But I still love you, no matter how dark you're feeling right now. And even the darkness that you're feeling now is is actually been sent by me at some level to tell you that I love you because I want to train you. I want to shape you. I want to mold you to be what I've predestined you to be. So God's delays are expressions of his love. The suffering that he allows or sends into our life are expressions of his love. And if you count on that, if you look at whatever you're suffering... You say, it's easy to say. Of course it's easy to say. I I never... The solution that the Scripture gives us are relatively easy to understand, and I thank God for that. But that does not mean they're easy to apply or enact. (laughs) Looking at some tragic thing that's happened in your life and saying, that's an expression of God's love, you've got to be kidding me. I, I know. And it will test how much we really believe what he says. So verse 7, then again, endure hardship. The hard time you're coming, you've got to look at it as discipline, as training, so that you can endure it. How did I make it through, you know, eight or ten years of wrestling? A lot of times it was just, I know I'm going to get better through this. You make it through a two-hour practice, and in those days our coach wouldn't let us drink water really dumb. <laughs> See how low weight we could get? How do you make it through? Well, I'm getting better. At least you think you are. Here, because God's orchestrating this, you're getting more like his son. Notice the love and acceptance isn't based on how much you improve in your training. He, the love and acceptance is the beginning of this journey. And it's because I know he loves and accepts me that the hard times that come, I I, I then can endure through them. (coughs) Romans 5.12, God demonstrated his love and that while we were uh, yet sinners, enemies, uh, you go through the whole passage there. We were bad off. We were ugly. We were terrible. That's when God loved us. And we got to go back to that. The, the, the historicity, right? You like that word? The, the history of the cross, the gospel becomes so central because when it is dark in my life, how do I know he still loves me? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Back to the cross. That, thank you for that song. Lead me to the cross. Back to the cross. Because if you look at every up and down of your circumstance, if you're like, well, I see a butterfly today, God must love me, and then the next day you get struck by lightning. By the way, we did read that there was a man in Texas in 2013 who got struck by lightning twice on the same day. 
Could he feel that God loved him that day? That would have been rough. I don't know. Yes, of course he could have. If he, I don't know anything about him, but if he is a man that's trusting Christ, has received the gospel, the lightning strikes have nothing to do with whether God loves and accepts him. And he could then endure hardship as training, discipline. God's treating you as children. And he goes on to make that argument. I'm going to just drop down to verse 10. So our parents, they discipline us for a little while as though they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good. He kind of recognizes that parents are doing the best they can. Sometimes they make mistakes. But God doesn't make mistakes. Every trial, every hardship, every frustration, God in his sovereign, amazing love and grace is orchestrating it for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. (coughs) Drop down. What does holiness produce? Produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Same word, I believe. Disciplined. Do we have a world that needs peace in our hearts? Do you need peace in your heart today? Are you tired of the stress just crippling you and crunching you? Are you tired of every frustration and hardship just washing over you like, like a wave? This, have, you, have you been to the ocean this summer? Got hit by a big wave? You know what that's like to just be... It's like being in a washing machine. You tired of that? I can't tell you that the waves aren't going to come. But I can tell you that God is a God of future grace, that he makes promises, and he has never failed on one. Never. That's a pretty good track record. I make promises to my kids, and I try very hard to keep them, but I'm a mistaken human being, and sometimes I just can't come through. I don't have the power. I don't have the energy. But God isn't like that. He always comes through on his promises. He's the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And as he brings trials into our life, it's an expression of his love because he's out for our good. He's trying to make us into his image. And he's going to succeed. And holiness then, as it's defined here, produces a harvest of righteousness and peace. Our author's realistic. He says it's painful. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. However, later on, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace. Those athletes in here, you know what it's like the first few days of practice and your body hurts. You feel like you're 43. That's how I feel all the time, just so you know. Okay, I wake up every morning like that. But you know, in a few weeks when you're in the game... You're going to be ready. You're not going to be stressed out about the game. We understand that when it comes to a game of soccer or football, but we need to understand that about life. That God is out for our good. The trials and hardships he's done are to shape us so that we can share in his holiness, be like him. I know it's painful, but the end result is going to be peace. A peace that Paul will say passes the understanding. People are going to look at you, how in the world are you enduring 
with peace through that kind of trial. And then you know what you're going to be able to say? You're going to be able to sing them, Jesus loves me. <laughs> you're going to be able to take them to the cross. You're going to be able to say honestly and sing honestly to live as Christ, to die as gain. I count all things lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing him. So, if you've had a summer similar to mine, or if you are going through something far, far worse, hang in there. Hang in there, Wellspring. Count on Christ. Bank on God and his future grace, his promises. And know that the hardships you have are because he loves you. He's out for your good. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I don't know if I've really said anything that these uh, dear people probably don't already know, but I trust that it'll be a good reminder for them that, um, that today they walk out of here and say, I, I trust you, Christ. I'm going to count on you today, no matter what's ahead. I'm going to I'm going to sing your praises this evening as much as I sang them this morning, no matter what's there. Lord, I know I need help with that a lot. My family needs help with that. Help us in some fashion of miraculousness to see whatever is coming our way as an expression of your sovereign love, that you're out for our good, even when it's cloudy, Lord. We can't do this unless you come. Come in Jesus' name, amen.